You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. everybody for coming to one of our uh, earlier talks, earliest talks this year. Um, we are welcoming uh, Professor Adam Stolberg today, who's going to give us a talk on strategic restraint and the contemporary Russia-Ukraine gas crisis, probing a network approach to a changing energy landscape. Um, my name is Philip Lyon. I am the managing director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies in the Jackson School of International Studies. We actually do have the longest name of any program in this entire building, and we have the most countries, which is a lot of fun. Um, we embrace both uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, which is to say the former uh, Warsaw Pact countries, um, and the former Soviet countries of Central Asia. So we have quite a diverse number of regions. Um, so that's why this is a very exciting topic for us as this speaks. Uh, this crosses many borders and many time zones. Um, we uh, are an interdisciplinary program. We run a number of talks this quarter. I think we have one talk almost every single quarter, every single week. So um, this is just a small sample of them here. And if you happen to miss some of them, please check out our website. Um, we are recording most of our talks and, and posting them online as podcasts. So um, it's a great way to catch up on your, I know, on your Russian and East European studies. Um, you can literally listen to uh, a fantastic podcast about strategic restraint in the contemporary nuclear <laughs> Russia-Ukraine gas crisis while you walk your dog around Green Lake or while you go running or while you drive to and from work or your home. So um, thank you for checking that out. And now I'm going to hand over to Professor Chris Jones. Um, who will introduce Dr. Stolberg. Well, Adam Stolberg has uh, always been in the right place at the, uh, <laughs> the right time. Uh, he uh, began his uh, career at the uh, University of Michigan, uh, then went uh, to uh, Columbia University um, uh, at a, a very interesting time in, uh, in their uh, history, and uh, they said, well, if you really want to go to the, the next big place, you should go out to Rand, UCLA, and have this new program. So we went out there and did that, and met uh, in that way um, a lot of the uh, uh, important intellectual figures of the late Gorbachev period who came to study. And some of the people who were in this course will be hearing some of these names. And I actually heard last night that uh, one of these people, a very complicated story, uh, uh, <laughs> met him in Moscow where he was doing research for Alexei Arbatov. Long story. In any event, they decided uh, sometime after midnight to go knocking on the door of uh, somebody he really wanted to see, and they actually got in and were able to set things up. Uh, uh, Marshal uh, Nikolai Ugarkov, the former head of the Soviet uh, general uh, staff. Uh, such a, maybe you could tell that story later. Well, the one thing he did say was. Please call next time. Before <laughs> <laughs> he arrived in the company of a drunken grandchild of uh, the marshals. Uh, he uh, uh, then went uh, uh, on to uh, uh, the Center for uh, Nonproliferation Studies at uh, uh, Monterey, um, the two, which is in uh, Monterey, California, the East West Institute in New York City, and has been. Uh, a consultant to the uh, Carnegie Corporation, which is not the Carnegie Endowment, but an uh, important uh, player in uh, uh, strategic and international uh, studies. Uh, he is now the co-director of the Center for International Strategy, Technology, and Policy at the San Nun School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Uh, the, uh, what is, the, what is the full name? It's the Georgia Institute of Technology. Right. That's the right way to, uh, to say it. And uh, he, he does all the things that we're uh, trying to do here, uh, undergraduate graduate courses in international security, Eurasian politics, nuclear nonproliferation, and energy issues. And um, uh, this is going to be a fascinating talk. That introduction, I a lot to live up to. But let me one thing say thank you to everybody. Maybe I'll sit since we're kind of in an informal environment here. Um, 
I must say before I start, I've, I've been a big fan of Chris's work and this, I risk dating myself and, and uh, also Chris, but his work on the Warsaw Pact uh, during the, the Soviet days really was, a, was very important in, in, in shaping my thinking about the former Soviet Union, which brings us to today, because in many ways we're sort of back to the future uh, with the good old bad old days of the Soviet Union and talking again about Moscow's uh, resurgence and its uh, increasing assertiveness on the global scene. And, but this time, uh, unlike in the Soviet period, it's not just relying on sort of hard military power and the nuclear weapon or their large conventional forces, but now we're seeing this rather sophisticated integration of different tools of statecraft, such as energy. And so that brings me to the talk today. What I want to do is talk to you a little bit about um, uh, how energy is used as an instrument of leverage or not, um, and uh, talk a little bit about the current gas wars. And what I see is an interesting puzzle. So uh, suffice to say, I'm not probably the first person that's been in front of you talking about a Russia and gas politics, gas wars, gas statecraft, because this really animates a very rife debate. Uh, and it's, there are a number of contending narratives surrounding uh, Russia's use of, of energy as an instrument of, of policy. Uh, on the one hand, uh, and, and in a crude way, they see that this is really a tool that Russia uses to bring others that are dependent upon its resources, such as natural gas, to their knees. And so this most current crisis that really has erupted since uh, the fall of 2013 really marks the third act in an energy drama that's been playing out uh, between Russia and Ukraine and, uh, and Europe since 2006, where we saw the first gas war, followed by again, another gas war in 2009, and then uh, what's been going on since 2013. So this is seen as a hard tool of Russia's uh, zero-sum approach to realpolitik, if you will. And on the other hand, there's another school of thought that says that, well, the landscape is changing. And just think about here in the United States. We, it was only a few years ago that we were worried about our oil dependence and our import dependence. And now we're talking about exporting, uh, not only oil, but potentially, or not only gas, but potentially oil. And uh, so the landscape's changing, and Russia is a real loser in this, uh, in this change. So there are new suppliers that are fundamentally altering the markets and therefore Russia's market power in natural gas. So they look at this uh, as not the third act in a, in a geopolitical game of hard politics, uh, but rather uh, that they see um, Russia's weakness uh, uh, playing out. And there are examples on both sides. And I don't, don't need to, we can talk about some of these individual examples, uh, but there's sort of Russia's on the, on the hard-headed side. There's obviously those people that look at what Russia's doing with China and sort of carving out a pivot uh, to the east as a way of playing off east and west. A talk of create, and they're doing that on oil pipelines too with the East Siberian pipeline. Similarly, the talk of Russia at the times has talked about creating a gas cartel, kind of like what OPEC is in oil, so that they can work their will over, again, dependent customers. Uh, and then there are all these pipelines that are being bandied about from North Stream, Turkish Stream, South Stream, you name it, uh, where there seem to be this sort of uh, steel umbilical cords, if you will, of dependence that Russia can create. On the other hand, you, on the, the sort of people that sort of point to the weakened, the changing landscape, the new market, the interdependent markets, uh, they point to uh, the shale boom uh, that we talk about here, but also the rise of liquefied natural gas that is fundamentally changing the way the gas is, is moved and creating more flexibility. Uh, in supply and demand, the renegotiation of contracts that Russia has had to make concessions on its long-term contracts with some of its uh, its uh, 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 customers. And of course, we see the European Union. Uh, many of us in the United States have sort of recognized the, the potency of the European Union as an economic player, but made folly of their stature on, on hard-headed defense and security issues. But we see on uh, energy issues over the last several years that the European Union has been able to marshal a lot of its institutional capacity with its competency policies and using, it, using its uh, authorities as a form of soft power to tame Russia, either through the courts or through threatening uh, access to their markets. So 
you see uh, a, a, a rise of the European Union and the discussion of the EU energy union is a manifestation of that. So there's this rife debate between those who see uh, energy, in particular gas, as a strong cudgel of Russian foreign policy versus a very weak reed upon which Russia can base its stature. And of course, this illuminates a much broader conversation about uh, what Putin's up to and what Putin's grand strategy is, right? On the, the one hand, there are those that, that sort of look at the hard-headed side of things and see, well, this is really just, again, a, a, a symbol of the atavistic mentality in Moscow these days. And Russia is really no greater than a 19th century imperial power seeking to work its will over dependent um, uh, periphery and, and, and other dependencies. On the other hand, there are others that see how sophisticated Russia is using new tools of statecraft, such as energy or information systems, to integrate in what they call this next or new generation warfare, where these are all integrated in a very sophisticated uh, coercive strategy, less brute force uh, strategy, uh, that's symptomatic of really of a 21st century power, not a 19th century power. So you can see energy gets implicated in those different narratives about uh, Putin's grand strategy. And of course, this then animates a debate over what the West should be doing in the face of either this 19th century atavism or this 21st century uh, sophisticated, uh, light-footed power. Uh, you know, what should we, should we be slapping sanctions on Russia's behavior? Or should we be, uh, as the European Union has been talking about, strengthening purchasing power among uh, consumers to create a monopsony uh, to offset Russia's uh, leverage. So you can see when we start talking about Russia and gas, it provokes a number of different debates at the policy level and in terms of Russia's grand strategy in general. But it also animates, and we're here in the hollow halls of academia, rife debates about much bigger issues, about such as what is a gas war in the first place? I mean, is it something that is akin to a hot war, is, or is it about seizing territory where there is uh, um, um, certain resources, or is it a function of a more coercive uh, type of policies? Um, so that's a question. You know, what about this, you know, what's driving these conflicts? Is it sort of resource nationalism and competition over scarce resources or exploitation of bottlenecks or choke points in the de delivery systems and the transmission uh, of resources? Is it something that's generating rents that states can use to to rearm themselves, to seize uh, territory, or is it something that provokes a, if you will, a, um, an anxiety-ridden defensive response uh, among uh, vulnerable customers? So, you know, what is driving uh, these kinds of things? And so, as those of you who study international relations know, there's sort of different levels of analysis. This is either part of markets or, or sort of relative power sets of explanations or even domestic political or even constructivist or those based on norms and, and, and how states are defining energy security and their respective strategies. Okay, so there are a number of debates here, both at the policy level and at the more conceptual theoretical level. But we're going to be here for a while. I guess I've got, I've got your attention for uh, a bit of time. And I like, and we're going to cover a lot of things, but I like everybody to know exactly where I'm coming from. And then I can sort of backfill. Uh, so I don't want to lose you. So let me give you the sort of main takeaways from the talk that I'm going to lay out. One, when we look specifically at this contemporary crisis involving Russia, Ukraine, and the EU, paradoxically, we see much more restraint. Gas has not been used as a weapon as it was, let's say, in 2006 or 2009, or relative to the other forms of hostility surrounding the energy dimension to the relationships between those parties. So there's been remarkably uh, uh, a lot of restraint demonstrated, not just by Russia, but also Ukraine uh, and the EU. But I would argue that this sort of suspended, this restraint is far from uh, cooperation and is a suboptimal outcome for all parties. Okay, so we're, this is the puzzle. Why is it that these parties are locked into this suboptimal situation? And even while they're battling and even Ukraine's being dismembered, we see remarkable restraint on all parties. So that's the empirical puzzle that I'm trying to unravel. 
And the explanation I try to give, and I'll try to lay it out, is that it has, you know, sure there's price of oil is changing and the market matters, and we're even seeing a changing political geography of supply and demand uh, in the natural gas landscape. But I would argue that's really what's fundamentally changed is taking place at both the infrastructure level and at the corporate level. And in essence, what we're seeing is that the emergence of natural gas networks. Uh, and these networks and these network set of relationships are influencing or shaping, I should say, uh, what power, vulnerability, and influence is in these relationships between the different parties. So it's the infrastructure and the corporate relationships that are now strategically shaped by networks rather than thinking in terms of point-to-point -point pipeline, who's the supplier and who's the customer at any one particular pipeline. We need to understand the network set of relationships. And so I'll try to unpack that. And then by understanding this set of relationships between Russia, Ukraine, and Ukraine, and fix, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, fixating on this puzzle of restraint, taking a network orientation, well, that generates a number of strategic implications that I think we need to pay attention to. One is that Russia is a lot less uh, influential in a non-commercial way than people have been thinking about, and that what we're seeing today is fundamentally different than what happened in 2009. So Russia is down. But the other part of the argument is that Russia is not out. Uh, the Russia enjoys a number of commercial advantages to remain an important player within this uh, gas network. Uh, but what's shaping up is therefore more of a commercial game than a strategic game. Uh, and I'll sort of unpack that. And that has policy implications for how we should be thinking about how to respond to what we may be seeing there in Russia and the efficacy in particular of sanctions. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And it also has implications for uh, the relevance or the value added of U.S. Uh, gas exports. Can the United States come to the rescue? Or how significant these pivots to Asia are? So we can talk about a number of these policy implications. But to understand those policies, I think you really have to appreciate uh, this puzzle, how what's going on today is different than what's transpired uh, since 2006, and to appreciate this network orientation. So in the remaining minutes that I have, that's what I want to talk about. And I have a lot of slides. I'm not going to cover all of them, but we can maybe hit a number of them in, in Q&A. So I'm going to go kind of quickly over a number of these things. Uh, but what I want to do in the, the time remaining is take a step back first. And I don't know how much of you guys, are you guys are studying the relationship between energy and international conflict. So I want to lay out the landscape about what people think they know about that relationship and talk about versus what we actually know uh, from more uh, systematic study to situate this. And then talk a little bit about some of the myths surrounding uh, Russia's gas prominence, if you will. Uh, and then unpack this puzzle of restraint uh, that I was talking about, make sure we understand what I'm talking about there. And then capture some of this changing uh, dimensions of the global gas landscape and the emergence of networks uh, and then how those networks map onto some of the elements of restraint that we've been seeing in this, per in this crisis, and then talk a little bit about some of the implications, both strategic and policy. All right, and so stop me along the way. Uh, I'm going to try to go through this quickly so that we'll have enough time to, to, for Q&A. But let's turn quickly to what we think we know. And everybody here has probably heard about a lot of these conventional wisdoms concerning the relationship between energy and conflict. And as, as I mentioned before, it's sort of commonplace to talk about resource wars or blood oil uh, in, in terms of local conflict. But in terms of international across state conflict, we see energy is implicated in uh, you know, territorial grabs, the, the crises are function of choke points in the distribution. You know, we talk about uh, the Straits of Malacca uh, in the Gulf uh, region, so that energy sort of creates vulnerabilities. Uh, we talk about um, how supplier states earn rents, as I mentioned, from selling energy. Like Petro states can earn those rents to then buy military capabilities to then prosecute their uh, wars or conflicts in their favor. Alternatively, vulnerable states may act uh, preemptively uh, out of vulnerability. Uh, so we see that energy has been implicated in a number of different popular wisdoms, uh, creating you know pipelines. These big fixed infrastructures create fixed dependencies. 
okay? And there's a debate over who's dependent on whom. Uh, is it the supplier that's dependent on the customer, customer on the supplier, or maybe even the transit state holds all the cards. Uh, there's this, you know, because once the investments in the pipelines are put in place, right, the suppliers and the customers have a business relationship, but the transit state can maybe renegotiate for better terms, and so they can hold up uh, things. So energy is implicated in terms of the infrastructure and specifically in these pipe, these point-to-point -point things. Some people have even talked about an energy mad. I don't know how many of you have studied nuclear strategy, but in the, you know, the, the good, bad old days, right, we had stability because the United States and the Soviet Union said, don't move or I'll shoot, right? We had this sort of threat of mutual suicide uh, that was so costly that uh, no, neither one wanted to take the risk of, of escalation in these cases. Well, some people argue that energy, it's the ultimate elixir. Our militaries, our economies run on oil uh, and increasingly are powered by natural gas. And as a result, any sort of disruption in these supply customer relationships are tantamount to driving our economies and our militaries to a halt. And therefore, it's akin to what some people say uh, is mutual assured destruction if you break these uh, energy relationships. And of course, these concepts have resonated in the policy spheres we talk about in Russia. We talk about Russia's rise as an energy superpower uh, in, in the former Soviet space. And if anybody's ever been to Baku and Azerbaijan in the early 1990s, you see bumper stickers that say, happiness is multiple pipelines, right? Because they wanted to get out all of their oils through different directions. And so they saw oil as a strategic way of breaking out of the Soviet um, space. Uh, uh, energy, you know, we talk about NATO assuming a role in protecting pipelines, and so we, there's people who talked about an energy NATO. Uh, and then now we even talk about the United States gas exports kind of coming to the rescue and being more than just a commercial enterprise, but something that we can use to tame Russia, for example, by strategically uh, targeting where our exports go or which, which particular uh, LNG facility gets approved and may be shaped by its, its strategic value to deliver cost effectively to strategic customers like those in Europe versus Asia. Okay, so there are a bunch of narratives out there that capture that. But when we look much more carefully at the research, which by the way, for those of you who are students and those of you who are grad students that are interested in a dissertation topic, Studying the relationship between energy and conflict is a ripe field. Really, since last few years, I think over, uh, I think it was in 2014, somebody did a study that uh, over the previous 30 years, there were only 14 articles in the major international security journals on energy and how energy is related to conflict, notwithstanding all those conventional wisdoms that everybody has. So it's, it's very understudied field. Uh, and for good reason, because when we start looking at it, we see that energy conflicts are actually quite rare, notwithstanding the conventional wisdom that uh, that they break out all over the place. Or anytime anybody's selling oil to, uh, or anytime any customer is importing oil, they're vulnerable. Okay, so we see that there's a lot more myth than reality around these conflicts. Uh, that to the extent that oil or natural gas is related to international conflict, they're one of many factors. They're not necessarily the decisive factor. Uh, this whole notion of energy independence is uh, quite suspect, in both empirically uh, and uh, conceptually, and we can talk maybe a little bit about that. There's no uniform effect on conflict. In other words, uh, it's not just about uh, territorial conflict. Sometimes, actually, energy can be used to foster cooperation, so it's the conditions under which they shape those outcomes that may be more decisive. Um, when we look specifically at conflict, we see that up to the 1990, early 1990s, there was more conflict over oil than natural gas, although natural gas has now increasingly uh, become uh, where the activity is. The extent there's been conflict has been over unproven as opposed to proven resources among geo, uh, geo, uh, geographically proximate uh, countries. It's tend to be on uh, over um, onshore resources as opposed to offshore resources. But those conflicts take place between suppliers and customers, rival suppliers, between rival customers. So it's not just sort of one way, uh, a one-way street here. Similarly, uh, when we talk about energy conflict, it's not just about capturing the resources, right? And it's not just about wars over those resources. But it can be, energy has also been used as an instrument of coercion to get states to do something that they weren't otherwise going to do, or potentially even deterrence, get them not to do something, okay? So we see a variety of outcomes. And we also see that ultimately, and this is where my earlier research really resides, 
is that when we're talking about energy conflict, you don't just look at one country's policies like Russia, because conflict is really the outcome of strategic interaction between the choices, information, power, et cetera, uh, and uncertainties and risk between contending either states or, and in some cases, firms. And so we need to understand the strategic landscape and the conditions under which either firms or states uh, compete versus uh, cooperate. And to the extent that we have seen energy emerge as an instrument of coercion or conflict, um, a lot of the times the wars, the actual turnoff of the spigot is inadvertent. That goes, a, the escalation process gets out uh, uh, beyond uh, the, the control over the different players. And there's huge blowback costs uh, in reputation as well as in actual disruptions uh, that can cost billions of dollars. Uh, and Russia has really uh, witnessed that on a number of occasions. And then finally, what is the definition of success in an energy conflict? Right, If you're trying to coerce uh, a party to do something, if you have to follow through by using brute force rather than just relying on your threats, well, arguably you failed in your strategy. And so one way to look at these gas wars when Russia actually has to turn off the spigot is actually as a failure of policy as opposed to, because they suffered those reputational and material costs uh, and not what they wanted to, to, to uh, uh, achieve. So there's a lot more confusion. It's an understudied domain. And there are many more dimensions to it than just sort of looking at turning on and off the spigot. Uh, so that's sort of the backdrop. But let's be honest. Um, and there are a number of puzzles, I might add, um, about uh, this relationship between energy and conflict. Because uh, earlier, as I talked before, you know, the different levels of analysis in international relations can be associated with different explanations. And I kind of touched on those earlier. But the bottom line is, when we look at the picture, and especially when we look at Russia's relationship uh, to its, its customers or its transit states, we see much more variation. There's more conflict than, than the interdependency theories would suggest, and there's um, less conflict than the uh, resource nationalist realist arguments would explain. And we can sort of dissect some of those a little bit later. And we can see that, that there's increasingly, to the extent that there is conflict, it's more over gas than over oil issues. And, so we need to pay attention to the differences in those sectors, and that's something that we can talk more about um, in the in the Q and A. And also, there's some bargaining puzzles because, in many ways, we should not. From if you have a rationalist understanding of war, given the cost of war and uh, for all parties, there's, it's always a suboptimal outcome. There's always an outcome that both parties would prefer short of war, uh, and so. War then becomes a focal point of information asymmetries, uncertainty, et cetera. And there, it's a bargaining problem. Uh, misperception, miscalculation, things like that can also come into play. Well, in the, we should not expect to see that so much here. This isn't like you know sending forces in the fog of war, sort of, because these are infrastructures. They're fixed. They're, they're, they've already are demonstrated repeated interactions uh, between parties. In many cases. You know, this is their, their, you know, this infrastructure is part of a broader set of economic relationships. So the stakes on any one of these particular pipeline deals are not as great strategically as you would think in terms of a territory, another territory that may have more symbolic purposes. So we wouldn't expect to see some of these miscalculations, these uncertainties, these suboptimal outcomes that we we have been seeing. So that's a puzzle that it presents. So. But let's get down to it. This is the image we all have when the conversation turns to Russia. It's that regardless of all the puzzles, regardless of what we think we know versus what we do know, when we look at the broader phenomenon, this is the image that we have when we think about Russia. It's sitting on the pipelines, ready to turn off the spigot on its dependent customers or uh, vulnerable transit states. And there are a number of myths associated with that. One is that Russia is an energy superpower. And we can do, we can discuss this in more depth, but I would I would posit to you that Russia on oil is actually quite weak. Russia is a price taker, even though any one day and point in time, and in, in you know prior to 2012, uh, Russia was exporting or producing more oil uh, than Saudi Arabia, but it didn't have the ability to set prices, so it was a price taker. In natural gas, however, Russia has been a very prominent player, and largely because of the features of natural gas until very recently were primarily regionally determined because it was based on certain set of infrastructure that had to be delivered. And most of gas has been, until recently, been delivered through these pipelines. Uh, not uh, anyway else. So you have to build this pipeline, and Russia had these pipelines that it inherited from the Soviet Union. And, and uh, so it, it, when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
here you had all these uh, forms of leverage. And by the way, for anybody who gets into the oil and gas business now, they're always fixating. When you talk to any business person, the first thing they're always going to tell you about why you're not going to see holdup problems or these things being used strategically is that it's all about return on investment, right? You go to your business school up the, up the, up the walk, that's what they talk about, return on investment, return on investment. Well, guess what? The investors are long gone in these pipelines, right? The Soviet Union, first off, it's not clear what the rationale was for building these pipelines. And I guarantee you the people sitting on these pipelines are not thinking about return on investment, right? They're talking about playing for marginal uh, benefits uh, because those are, you know, the, the investments are gone. So Russia, uh, and there are a number of constraints on Russia today in gas. One of them is that there's an oversupply. They have a stagnant domestic market. They've got a stagnant main market, which is Europe. They can't get out of very well. And to the extent that they're emerging markets, they're in LNG, and Russia's having a tough time breaking into those things. So Russia has their limitations to uh, their stature, and we'll talk about those things. But it's important that we don't have this blanket notion of Russia being this global energy superpower. It's quite weak on gas. Uh, but it is, regionally speaking, especially in the European context, a significant uh, power, both commercially and up to recently, I would argue, non-commercially as well. Another myth is about dependency, and that Europe, they buy you know, 30% of their gas, 34% uh, of the imported gas uh, from, from Russia. Uh, so they're seen to be heavily dependent. But who's dependent on whom, given the, the role that uh, oil, but also gas plays in the in the overall state budget for Russia. Uh, the importance of Europe for it's really the only place with until recently they well the only place right now that they're earning uh, uh, hard currency export revenues uh, is the European market. Uh, so Gazprom has to recoup all of its losses uh, from uh, sales to Europe. And by the way, gas is not a money making activity for Russia. That's not where they make they make their money on oil. Okay, I, I, even though they're a price taker. Their big inflated, you know, the, the big percentage of their revenues and and uh, really comes from from oil because gas is loss making. They're selling gas at a discount uh, at home and to many uh, uh, other um, uh, uh, states that they're trying to to wield influence. And so dependency is a very complicated issue. And you know, you always see these kinds of pictures. Well, it's, this country in Europe is buying X percentage from Russia, uh, but this doesn't really tell you anything. This doesn't tell you anything about the choices, the alternatives that are available to these. This is at any one point in time, this is what their profile is. Uh, but uh, similarly, this, this doesn't tell us anything, uh, again, about the choices that are. This talks about how important U Russian gas uh, exports through Ukraine are to these countries. But again, it doesn't speak to the alternatives out there. And so there are other ways of measuring that uh, by looking at, at, at factoring in what the other alternatives are for those states. And you see that, uh, that, that it's, it's much less uh, significant. It's important for some countries. It's increasingly important for countries like Austria and Czech, the Czech Republic. But even though Bulgaria buys a lot of gas from Russia and Greece buy a lot of gas, the relative importance is actually going down. Uh, for Germany, Germany buys a lot of gas. Uh, from uh, Russia, but they buy a lot. Of, they can buy a lot of gas from a lot of places. And role of gas versus other substitutes like coal. And people don't like to acknowledge that coal is actually coming back into prominence in Europe. Actually, our coal, the United States, we're exporting coal to Europe these days. So there are all other substitutes that we, you know. So when we talk about dependency, we have to ask who's dependent on whom, right? This is a mutual dependency. Uh, relationship, and it's probably like um, uh, you know, like drug addi drug addicted dependencies. Uh, they're both dependent uh, on each other, uh, and we have to be careful on how we uh, measure uh, that dependency. Uh, another set of myths are out there is that remember those of you who studied um, uh, the U.S. foreign policy or U.S. politics, you always heard what was good for GM or General Motors is good for the country, right? Because General Motors is a big company, penetrated. Uh, U.S. policymaking. Well, the argument is that what's good for Gazprom is good for the Russian state, and they're one in the same. Okay, but you know, when we start looking, and those of you who studied the region know, well, there have been differences over. You know, Putin's not been happy with where the rents and where the profits have gone. There's been some, you know, cracking down on some of the uh, the uh, corruption. Similarly, the board of directors and the leadership of Gazprom is not so crazy on what Putin makes them sell uh, gas at a discount to Russian consumers. Uh, and uh, where they are forced to invest uh, in, in some of these pipelines, so that are non-commercial, 
Uh, so there's a lot more tension uh, that exists there. And so those of you who are studying Russia may want to look more into that. Also, there's Asia, the Asian reduction, that somehow uh, Russia is going to be playing off the, uh, you know, China's rise and and, and increasing appetite for energy resource, and they'll play them off against uh, uh, against Europe. Uh, but when we look more carefully, we see that there are a lot more constraints constraints on that. And we could talk more about that in the Q and A. But I'll give you a few things to keep in mind. One is China doesn't depend on natural gas to the same extent that European uh, members do. Okay, China, you know, relies on it for about 4% of their power generation. Their projections of 2020 are to rely maybe on 10%, as opposed to, you know, 60, 70% uh, in some of the European uh, member states. So China never is going to depend on natural gas as much as uh, European. So it's not a great substitute. Also, China has a lot of its own reserves. You know, the projections are, you know, maybe sliding a little bit, but 2020, China is going to be developing its own shale uh, reserves. Okay, and so China also has other suppliers of natural gas from Myanmar and Central Asia, uh, where they play a hedging game. So they're not they're not is is linked in this codependency relationship uh, like Europe is. Uh, so it's not clear that they're a, a, re a ready substitute for uh, Europe. Also, uh, the fields that are being discussed, and the pipelines. There's a lot of talk about the power of Siberia coming from East Siberia, uh, yeah, East Siberia or the West Siberian Altai uh, pipeline. You know, Russians wanted the West Siberian uh, pipeline to go first because that was the same field that was delivering gas to Europe. So you can maybe think of, you know, this notion of playing them off if you've got a pipeline going to China. But the Chinese are too smart for that. They said, well, if we're going to invest in anything, we don't want to get caught in that game. So we want you to invest in the Eastern Siberian field first. Okay, well, that, if you're developing those new fields, that gas isn't able to go uh, to Europe. And so the ability to play pipeline politics is much more uh, circumspect than I would than I would argue. And we need to pay more attention to those things. And of course, what is energy statecraft in the Russian case? As I mentioned before, turning on and off the spigot may be a symptom of weak policy and a failure of coercive diplomacy as opposed to a sign of actual power and, and if you have to use brute force. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, and this gets to the mutual dependency, there are different instruments of power and there are different costs and effects of using energy as an instrument of, uh, of influence. You see that over to Russia, it's, it, it's uh, increasingly costly for them to use energy as an instrument of leverage, uh, but they can still be effective over the long period of time. For the EU, it's actually costly for them, uh, but, but over time, they become more effective using energy as an instrument of their foreign policy. In terms of the Russian-Ukraine relationship, well, Russia uh, has some strong advantages, but over time it becomes more costly for them to rely on on energy as an instrument uh, for Ukraine because they can develop like reverse flow, flow uh, opportunities. They can rely on their storage facilities, and God knows maybe one time uh, they'll begin to increase their the business climate there so that they can attract investments in their own uh, domestic infrastructure. Uh, and that uh, similarly, Ukraine playing off against Russia, they're very weak now, but as they develop those diversified sources of energy and reform themselves from within, they'll actually be more effective in, in using energy in their own right. Also, energy, when we see it play out, and this is done by Bob Ortung at, uh, at, at GW, you know, it's not just about turning on and off the spigot. Energy is used as a source of subsidies to induce uh, countries to do things uh, that they may or may not want to do, or as well as the threat of cutoffs. Uh, and there have also been some uh, non-political reasons that energy has entered in due to explosions of pipelines, et cetera, that, are, that may have been more to do with the compression rather than any sort of political instinct. So we have to keep in mind that variation. That's all the backdrop to understanding this important puzzle that I've mentioned, which is restraint. But what do I mean by restraint? Okay, I stand up here. How can we, in fact, how can I possibly be saying we're talking about restraint? We've watched gas being cut off, right? You know, Ukraine and Russia squared off in November 2013. Gas was cut off in, Ju uh, in June or the summer of 2014. It was then cut off again in the summer of 2015, and only recently uh, is this bigot being turned back on. So how can I talk about this right here? Well, when we look at it, let's put it into context. Well, one is relative to what's going on in this crisis in 2013, since 2013. We've watched Ukraine being dismembered. Okay, yet gas has continued to flow. Even through the high point of the Crimean annexation, gas continued to flow. Okay, so Russia sold to Ukraine, Ukraine passed on to Europe. All right, that's relative to the other forms of conflict. Relative to what was Russia was doing outside of Ukraine proper. 
or eastern part of Ukraine. And their provocations. Uh, you know, there's one study that shows all of these uh, ratcheting up of pressure where Russia is, you know, uh, uh, seized this Estonian spy uh, in the Baltics, right, and sort of dragged him over uh, to flybys of commercial jets or uh, military jets or encroaching in Swedish airspace, okay, to launching cruise missiles from the Caspian into Syria, okay, or, um, uh, you know, shadowing forces or potentially conflicting, you know, threatening to conflict with U.S. operations uh, in Syria. So you see a lot of provocative action, even outside of Ukraine, yet again, we see this restraint on energy. But most interestingly, I'd say, is that we, need, we can see this restraint compared to what also has taken place on gas earlier in 2006 and 2009. And we can talk a, lot, a long time about those particular episodes, but suffice to say, in 2006, uh, what, turn, what was originally a battle over price and volume escalated very precipitously and rapidly into a very uh, short crisis. That was, the parties stood, it was a three-day crisis, the parties stood back. Uh, step back from it very quickly. Um, and uh, um, uh, this took place in the middle of winter. Um, similarly, in 2009, again, you had a conflict over uh, price and volume, but you also had some political uh, transitions going on and political battles within Ukraine and between Ukraine and, uh, and Russia. Again, this precipitously escalated, but this time into nearly a two-week uh, conflict that, that had significant costs in terms of downturn, uh, down, down, uh, downstream impact on your Euro European customers, especially in Central Europe um, and uh, Southern Europe, where they actually saw cutoffs of gas in the, at the real high point of winter. And this also hurt Russia significantly as well, um, uh, because Russia incurred about a billion dollars of loss in those cutoffs and, of course, their reputation and something that Russians had been coveting since the 50s on gas. You know, if you remember, in the, in the, during the Cold War, gas was actually the bedrock for detente and for cooperative relationships between East and West, even in the, some of the worst times uh, of the relationship. And Russia really prided itself, Moscow, the Soviet Union, and even the successors in Russia prided itself on having a reputation of being a reliable supplier. Well, after 2000, 2000, 2006 and 2009, well, that credibility was dramatically uh, uh, undermined. So relative to those previous conflicts, this restraint that we see stands out. But then let's look more uh, specifically uh, at the dimensions of restraint. So what am I actually talking about in terms of practice? Well, one is that Russia, as I mentioned, continued to sell gas to, to Ukraine. And not only did it continue to sell gas, it prepaid in 2013, 2014, and 2015 to Ukraine, even though it knew it had these longstanding points of acrimony and certainly cont contests over eastern Ukraine and Crimea. But And they know that they were taking a risk in that money, you know, paying that money, and then Ukraine shutting off that access. So they paid in advance. In addition, at the high point of tensions uh, over Crimea, Russia basically paid back about $3.5 billion in relaxed, uh, in, in, uh, due to lower prices. Uh, they paid their customers back. Uh, and they broke their own principle of sticking to those long-term contracts. So they actually paid um, retroactive compensation for changes in price to important to uh, European customers. And they accepted a compromise deal uh, in the summer of, or the, uh, the, the uh, fall of 2014 and again uh, most recently, uh, sacrificing their position on volumes, and gas, and long-term contracts, principles that they've historically uh, held uh, strong to. Similarly, though, Ukraine has also demonstrated restraint. They let gas flow through Ukraine, and Russian gas flow, and Russian gas earned profits from their most lucrative markets in Europe while their country was being dismembered. And not only did they allow that gas to flow, Kiev, right, Western Ukraine, sent troops to protect those Russian pipelines, okay? So, uh, you know, from against rebels on all sides, all right? So they're, they're sort of spending capital protecting those pipelines. They ultimately, too, accepted a winter package compromise deal. Uh, with Russia, where they sacrificed on price. They paid more than they wanted to. And they took uncertainty, because given they weren't sure where the market was, they weren't sure if they, Russia would follow through on follow-on deals. So these were short-term deals. 
going into winter. They were ending these deals going into winter initially. So they were, you know, taking a risk that Russia would play, you know, hard pipeline politics again at, at a point of vulnerability. And, uh, you know, it's important to note that it's been Kiev's initiative in, in, uh, uh, to stop buying gas from Russia. There's Kiev's initiative to stop buying gas. It was actually the relatively pro-Russian government in Ukraine in 2013, the end of 2013, that said they were not going to be buying gas uh, from Russia. It was the new government, arguably more oriented towards the West, that said they would be buying gas from, uh, from Russia and signing those compromise deals. Okay, And it's been this current government in Ukraine that said, we don't want to buy any more gas from you uh, in the last summer. Okay, and then just carve this deal. So Ukraine has demonstrated a lot more uh, restraint. Similarly, the EU has demonstrated restraint. Uh, they've avoided the sectoral sanctions on gas that have been put in place on oil. So they want to continue to allow gas to flow. And actually, they have a slightly different approach to sanctions than we do. And we can talk a little bit about that. And that has caused complications, by the way, for companies that are trying to do business because they're trying to navigate which sanctions they're going to be vulnerable to. Uh, but they have, but the EU story has been one of uh, restraint because they have not slapped those sectoral sanctions. Uh, they've failed to take advantage of when their storage fac facilities have been flush to play hardball hard with Russia and to extract better terms. Okay, they, they've been actually trying to broker compromise uh, and peace and not renegotiate. Uh, they've also promised to be, you know, to provide flexible lending. Uh, to Ukraine, so that some of the loans that are being that are being sent to Ukraine can be used to pay off Russia and pay off uh, to to provide prepayment and repayment uh, for gas. So there's been restraint demonstrated on on all sides. But as I mentioned before, this is not a great situation for any of the parties to be in. You, you, Europe remains vulnerable to some sort of holdup problem, either by Ukraine or by Russia. Ukraine doesn't have a long-term deal. Uh, their storage facilities even now are not completely full as they're starting to get into uh, the winter. And Russia, of course, doesn't have a long-term contract to rely on anymore. And Russia uh, has, you know, so this is not a great situation. You need to sort of, you know, look at this and more specific. I mean, this is in 2013, 2014, where Russia pegged its budget, right? It was $100 a barrel. Well, it was down to 60, and now it's a little under 50. Okay, now the Russian government is sort of recalibrated, and the current budget is pegged to $50 a barrel in gas, but they're now having to make some trade-offs with that. They're now having to debate whether or not they're going to cut some of the pension uh, fund, they're having to rely on their oil fund more uh, to cover uh, uh, deficits in the budget. Okay, they're having to bail out there and prop up the ruble and bail out Rosneft and the, the oil company. So they're, you know, th th this is not a great state for them uh, right now, this no war, no peace situation. Similarly, in 2013, Russia sold more gas to Europe than it had sold since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that was the heyday. Okay, and now look what's happened since that time, how their, their, their uh, sales have dropped uh, significantly. And so you see, uh, this has been costly for them. Okay, this is not an optimal outcome. And there's a debate over pipelines: should they go to Nord Stream, should they go to Turkish Stream? And each one of these streams are having problems over price, over other, you know, with Turkey. Now there's, you know, the Syrian factor comes in to complicate things. Uh, the, you know, Russia has now had to scale back its vision of Turkish Stream. That's about half the capacity that they thought. And now they're basically selling. Their vision now is to basically sell gas to Turkey and just have nominal amount go into Europe. Okay, so they, they've even stopped constructing some of their facilities in Russia as well as offshore. So this has not been ideal for them. Uh, also, uh, you know, Ukraine is not in a great state here because Ukraine. Well, sure, they're, you know, they've been able to get gas through reverse flow, and there's some storage facilities there. But ultimately, Ukraine's energy security is going to be dependent upon making reforms at home that make them more transparent, root out some of the corruptions to increase the investment climate so that they can develop their own resources and become more efficient in the way that they use resources to reduce their demand. So they ultimately have to, have to reduce their demand. They can't rely only on diversified uh, supplies. They may limp along in relatively mild winters, but we know that the, that the weather can change. So how do we explain the strategic restraint? And as I mentioned to you before, I lodge that in a broader understanding of what's going on with the global natural gas landscape, and specifically how that 
how those trends are leading to a different set of relationships between uh, major uh, countries and companies, specifically creating these networked set of relationships. So a couple things to keep in mind when we're looking at this broader context is that we see a very, the, the landscape is changing in terms of uh, where the growth in supply and demand is coming from, the change in political geography of the flow of supply and demand, and arguably this network orientation that's that's coming to play. And those of you who don't know much about the gas sector will appreciate that most of the real growth in natural gas is coming from non-OECD countries as opposed to OECD countries. And that the non-OECD countries are relying more on, on natural gas uh, to power the industry as opposed to power generation in OECD uh, countries. Now on the supply side, uh, you see uh, that shale is the fastest growing uh, component in, in, the, uh, in the supply side, uh, but, but shale is really the story for the OECD countries. It's really conventional resources, con conventional gas in non-OECD uh, uh, countries. And then when we sort of break it down regionally, we see that very different uh, complexion. The United States, by the way, not, is expected to be by 2017 an exporter of natural gas. Okay, so we, we're changing the whole dynamic. And by the way, we've had an impact on this before. Everybody says, well, right now we've not really been a big player because we've been uh, buying gas or we haven't been exporting gas. But actually, we've influ influenced the relationships uh, that I've been pointing to earlier uh, because we've not been buying gas that was earlier targeted for us. So that can be reallocated, such as the gas coming from North Africa that's been going in to cover uh, some of the demand in, in uh, Europe. So we've actually had an impact on that landscape in Eurasia, even without our exports. But we're projected by 2017 to be a net exporter. Uh, and um, uh, But Europe is going to rely heavily on imports. And primarily, they're going to see reliance on pipeline imports actually uh, increase. They're going to go up from about, um, well, they're going to go up. Uh, and China is going to be both a supplier all right, and a customer. And really, by 2020, we're going to see China emerge on the, uh, on the shale landscape. OK, so we're seeing, then, a very different political geography of supply and demand. And we're seeing the emergence of liquefied natural gas. Anybody know what liquefied natural gas is and what the basic difference is and why that's such a big deal? Can you transport it by tankers? Well, right, because as I mentioned to you before, one of Russia's sources of its regional influence is because it involves these big pipelines that are fixed that aren't moving anywhere, because that's really how 90% of gas has historically been delivered. Well, now, with this rise of liquefied natural gas, it allows for much more flexibility. You can deliver gas by freezing it and unfreezing it. Uh, you can deliver it by, by tanker, okay, by rail. It allows for more flexibility okay, in the landscape. And so what we're seeing, and I'll show you what that means strategically in a minute, but you can see that liquefied natural gas is increasingly becoming a prominent source. Could you talk about the... Uh the cost of getting into the LNG. Market. Right, it's very expensive. They're very huge. They're very significant startup costs. I have, actually have a slide here that gives okay. you a sense of the relative prices. But, right. but the point is, regardless of cost, it allows for flexibility. And so those are the two the things that are going on. We talk here in the United States about the shale boom and all the unconventionals, right? Uh, but really, the story geostrategically is not just that. It's arguably this technological innovation that's not just fracking, but it's this liquefied natural gas that allows for much more flexibility and re potentially, therefore, resilience and a global footprint and spread of natural gas rather than suppliers and customers being tied through the, the steel umbilical cord of a pipeline. Okay. Um, so those are some of the things that are going on at the global level. But for Russia, there are a number of strategic factors that are related to that. One is that they're price differentials, okay? It's, you know, everybody talks about Henry Hub prices. Those are the prices that we have here. But prices are, are vary according to different regions. And East Asia, actually, uh, is where there's a price premium, okay? That's where the highest prices are. So guess what? You know, in the United States, uh, you know, the state doesn't own uh, the, you know, the, the resources here, right? So if the state, once the United States signs off on giving a permit to a liquefied natural gas facility, well, those, com those companies, they're private sector entities, they're going to go where the highest prices are. Well, those highest prices are in Asia, not in Europe. Okay, so it's not clear that, and this is one of the things we can talk about later, that U.S. exports are really coming to the rescue to Europe, maybe indirectly because they're freeing up other gas, but our exports are going to go where the price premium is, which is in 
in Europe or in, in Asia, not Europe. So there's some price differentials and price matters. And I would argue that we're still, though, talking about regional markets. It's going to be a while before we get a single price in a global market. However, gas will be able to flow to these market, these regional markets uh, much more readily due to LNG. So that's one thing that, that affects Russia because before everything was really delivered through pipelines and they had really a monopoly on those uh, pipelines coming into Europe. Now there's some flexibility and it's reflected in these different prices. And, the Euro, and here's, uh, here's the U.S. different scenarios for U.S. exports. So the U.S. supply is also very impro important. And U.S. supply is driven by one, the availability of the resources, the prices internationally uh, for natural gas, and our innovative capacities. Because one of the things that's really been quite remarkable is that the shale revolution in the United States is really generated by medium-sized companies. And they've been quite resilient when prices have been in the 40s, $40 a barrel in oil. Uh, most people expected in Saudi Arabia, arguably, has been trying to, you know, hold prices, you know, keep production up, hold prices down to drive the American producers out of the market because they see that American producers in oil gas are the real potential challenges. Uh, but they, the American producers have been quite resilient up to now, largely because they've been innovating and they've made fracking actually much more effective, cheaper, uh, and efficient. And so they've been able to stay into the market. But to the extent that the U.S. remains a big producer, not so much exporter of natural gas, will affect Russia because that will affect the global surplus. Okay. The other thing that will affect the global surplus, of course, is Chinese demand. And as I mentioned, China is expected to be one of the largest. So East Asia is supposed to be the largest, you know, uh, consumer of natural gas moving forward. And the story is therefore China and how much their demand is is going to affect. <laughs> that global surplus, which will affect Russia's ability to play on the margins. So for those of you who are strategic thinkers, this is sort of the Russian situation, right? De determined, really hemmed in and constrained by US production and Chinese consumption, right? The, the worst situation for Russia, right, is when there is um, a situation where the Chinese are not consuming very much and the US are producing a lot. The sort of situation down here in the bottom right, right? That's the worst situation. There's no real demand. The U.S. is covering and creating surplus there. China's not buying. The best situation, of course, for Russia is when China is buying and we're not producing, okay? Then they can play not only a role in China, in Europe, but also in China, okay? There's a marginal opportunity when uh, we're, we're producing a lot and Chinese are consuming a lot because there's going to be demand and Russia can play in a role on the margins satisfying some other uh, growing demands there. Uh, and there's a sort of the second best situation for Russia is when uh, when neither we're producing very much or the Chinese aren't uh, consuming a lot, but the Europeans still have a demand that Russia can, can satisfy. So Russia is going to be an important player in Europe. But the point being that Russia's strategic role of gas is really determined by players not in Russia. It's by factors related to Chinese demand and U.S. or North American production. Those are major influencers on uh, uh, Russia's strategy. The other thing that's changing is this rise in LNG. We're now seeing uh, more players, both on the seller side and on the consumer side, that has rerouted the way that gas is diffused. And, and, and uh, this is how it looked like on the eve of the first crisis, and this is what it looked like uh, on the eve of the, the second crisis, or the third crisis uh, in Europe. And you know, this is what experts and GE, for example, project, that we're going to have a global gas market driven by the flexibility provided by LNG. Okay? And so we're going to see a situation where we're moving from point-to-point -point delivery of pipelines uh, to networks. And those networks are going to be multiple. They're going to be vertical as well as horizontal. In other words, gas is going to intersect with the transportation networks, uh, grid issues. Uh, as well as with uh, the interplay between uh, cross-border pipelines, LNG facilities, storage facilities, et cetera. So we're going to increasingly see the rise of networks. Well, this is all played out in Europe. Okay, This has been at the highest level, but what we've seen between since that 2009 crisis is the emergence of a European network situation. You know, most of us, when we talk about Russia delivering to Europe, when one, we have that image of the bear on the pipeline. The other image that we have is looks something like this, right? There are a few main pipelines coming into Europe, and they're all coming in from Russia, and therefore this is a picture of their stranglehold. But in reality, this is what it looks like. It's a much more dense uh, structure. This is just the pipeline. 
And you see there are cross-border pipelines, there are reverse, uh, there are connectors, there are reverse flow pipelines. It's a much more dense network. In addition, and by the way, this is what the reality is, but of course reality doesn't mean anything when you have politicians involved, and usually you have to convince politicians, but you don't have to convince them very much. This is a handwritten note written by the Bulgarian prime minister when he was trying to make the pitch to the president of the European Union saying that Bulgaria should be the new European energy hub. And he was trying to explain this whole concept of the emergence of networks. So this is the cognitive map, the understanding that is now seeped in politicians. And so if there's ever a bellwether that there's, this is the reality, and the fact that a politician would actually envision the same kinds of things that we're seeing actually in reality uh, suggests that uh, we've come a long way, baby, as I said. So, um, so we see these networks emerging. And so in addition, you see the gases coming in from other places, such as LNG from North Africa, uh, uh, et cetera. And so the story that people forget in 2013 is that Europe had actually, was only using about 21% of its LNG capacity. Okay, it has a lot more LNG. Okay, the problem is that that spare capacity is not very well connected to where the real demand is. And so the spare capacity is in places like Spain and Portugal, right, that gets the gas from uh, North Africa, but they don't have pipelines that can deliver that gas to where it's needed in Central Europe, uh, et cetera. So the challenge for Europe is, not, is as much building out the infrastructure within Europe as much as getting gas uh, from alternative suppliers. So, uh, and this, this gives you an idea that there are a number of uh, LNG facilities that are proposed okay, to be developed. There's a bunch of storage facilities, uh, et cetera. So I would say that Russia no longer has that sort of bear on the spigot uh, control. And even it's this focus on three or four pipelines coming from Russia really does not capture uh, the robustness, the flexibility, the density, and the resilience of the infrastructure. Uh, that exists, that give politicians more options. But that said, Russia is not out, because Russia has comparative advantages here. This gives you an idea of sort of what, what it, it's cheaper for Gazprom to sell gas, uh, especially from the Yamal fields, the break-even uh, 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 costs, the marginal costs for Russia are a lot cheaper to sell gas to Europe than even natural gas coming from LNG. So from a purely commercial perspective, which is really the day-to-day -day workings of natural gas, Russia is going to remain a player, okay? Because commercially, they have advantages to sell cheaper uh, to the region. Uh, and you, it's reflected in the long-term contracts that exist, okay? Russia's not going away, okay? Notwithstanding the more density uh, there is. And, and there's the pipelines coming from Russia are not readily replaced. You see how much capacity that's available in them, okay? Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that Gazprom has a lot of relationships with a lot of other companies, okay? And as one thing we've seen is that a lot of these other companies, such as those in the big energy companies in Europe or in um, Russia or in the United States are crying uncle and they're, they're, they're very tied to Gazprom. So, the story about restraint American is companies are tied to yes. I'll show you this in a minute. Um, so you see that Russia may be down due to the density of this network, but it's clearly not out. And good way to look at that, and this is where I put my sort of scholarly hat on, is that we're trying to understand what power, influence, and leverage looks like in these network relationships. So when we look at the infrastructure relationships. And we tried to look at you know what the infrastructure, where the hubs are in terms of proximity of cross-border pipelines, LNG facilities, and storage facilities in different parts of Europe, and tried to look at using social network analysis, try to understand how important a hub is for other important relationships within that network. Okay, uh, and tease out some of the and, and network analysis is great because by understanding the relative importance of a hub to other relationships in that within that network, you can understand the second and third order effects of a hub. Okay, it's not just how much they're buying, how much they're selling, but who they're influencing and how influential they are. You can also get a sense of the optionality provided by the hub. So if you want to sanction or, or build up a hub, uh, that gives you a, a sense. So network analysis can be useful. And when we break things down, we see when we look at Central Europe, when we go from north, central to southern part, we see that Russia remains quite influential and that Russia's gas relations, particularly with Poland, um, 
and the, and the, uh, and the Baltic states are, are quite significant. However, with LNG, it's giving more flexibility and increasing the role of Baltic and Polish hubs to bring in alternative uh, sets of, uh, the, the, of alternative supplies. So they're bringing in uh, natural gas through the liquefied natural gas facilities and their interconnectors from different parts of the world that can spread to other uh, downstream uh, customers. Uh, when we look at in sort of Central Europe, we see that actually Hungary is emerging as a real hub, largely because they the, the gas that comes through Hungary goes to Austria, and then Austria goes on to Italy. So it goes to these other very important markets there. So notwithstanding what uh, some of the other, like Czechoslovakian hub or some of the others, Hungary actually has a large network score and is quite uh, influential. When we go down to the south, we see that it's actually Romania with the opportunity for the LNG facilities, the Agri pipeline, and most recently there's been some uh, natural gas uh, offshore that's been located. That the gas, that the Hungar Hungarian hubs go into the Austrian hub and also the Italian hubs. So it's Hungary more than Bulgaria uh, and, and Greece that that really are important uh, influence and potential influencing uh, places. But when we look at corporate relationships, that's another really interesting thing. So, you know, there's a whole literature about, um, you know, how do we measure, you know, who's dependent on whom and what the nature of the relationship is. And most of the time we look at those contracts and we say, okay, the X company's selling to another company. If we cut that out, that's going to hurt the target maybe uh, because it was dependent upon that, con that, that contract. But actually the literature says that, well, the quality of corporate ties matter. And actually the more qualitative the relationship, uh, if you sever that relationship, it can hurt the sender uh, because it can affect the stock price of the home company, uh, the European company or the American company. Uh, so the more qualitative the relationship, uh, the more resistance there may be uh, to sanctions.